and welcome to the Narrow Road Podcast, a place to share the journey of walking with God on the narrow road that leads to life. I hope that you find rest and encouragement here, but above all, the awareness that you're not alone on the way. Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Narrow Road Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Bowyer, and it is my pleasure to be back with you for another episode. Today, we are getting into Luke chapter 9, and what a chapter it is. <laughs> um, Luke does not fail to disappoint in terms of the punch he packs into these um, sentences. He covers a lot of ground, a lot of time, and a lot of moments that are very profound to the Christian faith, very profound moments in the lives of the disciples with Jesus. And we see Jesus begin to sort of advance in a sense of urgency, with a sense of urgency with his disciples. He starts to talk in ways that are really leveling their understanding of what it actually means to follow him. He's going to start giving them more authority to sort of stretch themselves into the space of doing ministry on their own with his blessing, but they're also just going to really hear out of his mouth this quite um, intense perspective of what it actually means to follow God compared to religious ritual, compared to anything that has ever been seen on the world today. He is He's going to transform their understanding of what it actually means to be a human on this earth who has a relationship with their father in heaven. And so he, he takes it real serious, as he should. He is God, and he loves us enough to tell us what it actually means. Not the watered-down version of, of walking with God might seem, but the real version of what walking with God might seem, so that all people might count the cost that it will cost them to truly walk with him in a world devoid of him. And so I hope that as we read this together today, that first that Holy Spirit would really tenderize our hearts and prepare our hearts to hear what he says and to receive it with a spirit of humility and understanding and really, really take it seriously. Because I remember to myself in different times in my life when life got very, very hard. I remember saying, you know what? No one told me it would be this hard <laughs> to follow God. And I had to search out the scriptures and for myself and continue to remind myself, no, actually Jesus did. He did. Um, but oftentimes when we're brought into the kingdom, it's sold to us as it's going to be rainbows and butterflies. He's going to fix all your problems. You're going to be so much happier. Everything is better in God. And the reality is, is in many ways that's true spiritually. But in the natural realms of human existence in a planet that doesn't want God and, and rages against him, it's actually quite hard to stay um full of all the wonderful things you want to be full of because yeah anyway <laughs> I don't want to ramble but he's gonna say some serious things that we all need to hear we all need to understand what it actually means to be a follower of our God on the planet 
So we're going to see some great miracles. There's awesome, wonderful things, but there's some real heaviness to this particular chapter. And I'm going to do it my best to do it justice. I'm going to give it my best. Um, but I hope that you will listen with an open heart and a willingness to, to wrestle with some of what he says. Let's dive into Luke chapter 9. Alrighty, so let's dive into Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 1, reading from the Amplified Bible. Now Jesus called together the twelve disciples and gave them the right to exercise power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. Then he sent them out on a brief journey to preach the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey that might encumber you, neither a walking stick, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city to go to another. And as for all those who do not welcome you, when you leave that city, shake the dust off your feet, breaking all ties with them, as a testimony against them that they rejected my message. So they began going from village to village, preaching the gospel and healing the sick everywhere. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, who governed a portion of Palestine, including Galilee and Perea, heard about all that was being done by Jesus, and he was thoroughly perplexed because it was said by some that John the Baptist, whom he had ordered beheaded, had been raised from the dead, and by others that the prophet Elijah had appeared, and by others still that one of the other prophets of old had been resurrected. Herod said, I personally had John beheaded. Who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see Jesus. When the apostles returned, they told him all that they had done. He took them with him, and he privately withdrew across the Jordan to a city called Bethsaida. But when the crowds learned of it, they followed him, and he welcomed them, and he began to talk with them about the kingdom of God and healing those who needed to be healed. Now the day was ending, and the twelve disciples came and said to him, Send the crowd away, so that they may go into the surrounding villages and countrysides and find lodging and get provisions, because here we are in an isolated place. But he said to them, Jesus said, You give them something to eat. And they said, Well, we have no more than five loaves and two fishes, unless perhaps we go and buy food for all these people. For there were about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down to eat in groups of about fifty each. They did so, and had them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fishes, and he looked up to heaven and gave thanks, and blessed them and broke them, and kept giving them to the disciples to set before the crowd. They all ate and were completely satisfied. And the broken pieces which they had left over were abundant and were picked up, Twelve baskets full. Now it happened that as Jesus was praying privately, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? They answered him, Oh, they say John the Baptist, and some say Elijah, but others say that one of the ancient prophets has come back to life. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter replied, The Christ, the Messiah, the anointed of God. But he strictly warned and admonished them not to tell this to anyone, saying, 
The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected as the Messiah by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be put to death and on the third day be raised up from death to life. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to follow me as my disciple, he must deny himself and set aside his selfish interests and take up his cross daily, expressing a willingness to endure whatever may come, and follow me, believing in me, conforming to my example, in living and, if need be, suffering or perhaps dying because of faith in me. For whoever wishes to save his life in this world will eventually lose it through death. But whoever loses his life in this world for my sake, he is the one whom who will save it from the consequences of sin and separation from God. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world through wealth, fame, and success, but loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed here and now of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Heavenly Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truthfully, there are some among you Who's standing, who are standing here, who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these teachings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, actually transformed. And his clothing became white and flashing with the brilliance of lightning. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure from earthly life, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him had become overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and splendor and majesty and the two men who were standing with him. And as these men, Moses and Elijah, were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is delightful and good for us to be here. We should make three sacred tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. But even as he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were greatly afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, my chosen one. Listen and obey and yield to him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found there alone, and they kept silent and told no one at that time any of the things which they had seen concerning the divine manifestation. On the next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met Jesus, and a man from the crowd shouted for help, "'Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, because he is my only child.' And a spirit seizes him, and suddenly he cries out, and it throws him into a convulsion, so that he foams at the mouth." And only with great difficulty does it leave him, mauling and bruising him as it leaves. I beg your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here to me. Even while the boy was coming, the demons slammed him down and threw him into a violent convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. They were all amazed, practically overwhelmed, at the evidence of the greatness of God and his majesty and his wondrous work. But while they were still awed by everything Jesus was doing, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed and handed over to men who are his enemies. 
However, they did not understand this statement. Its meaning was kept hidden from them so that they would not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest, surpassing the other disciples in esteem and authority. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and had him stand beside him. And he told them, Whoever welcomes this child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me also welcomes him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, that is, the one who is genuinely humble, the one with a realistic self-view, he is the one who is truly great. John replied, Master, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus told him, Do not stop him, for he who is not against you is for you. Now when the time was approaching for him to be taken up to heaven, he was determined to go to Jerusalem to fulfill his purpose. He sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went into a Samaritan village to make arrangements for him. But the people would not welcome him because he was traveling towards Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and destroy them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they journeyed on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go, Jesus. And Jesus told him, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another, Follow me, accepting me as master and teacher. But the man said, Lord, allow me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, Allow the spiritually dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and spread the news about the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, as your disciple. But first let me say goodbye to those at my home. But Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hands to the plow and looks back to the things left behind is fit for the kingdom of God. Okay, like I said, a lot of heavy truths being spoken out of the mouth of Jesus. You see some real intensity beginning to form. By the end of this chapter, he is making his way towards Jerusalem for the end of his natural life. And so you can feel that intensity building in him with some of the things that he's saying. And so it's it's pretty wild to know that roughly... The majority of Jesus's life is is happened already in terms of you know he's nearing the end of his his three years of ministry already. Um, and this particular chapter, we're going to get a lot more information from Luke about different things that Jesus does, but he's he's skipping a lot of things in this particular chapter and just narrowing in on some very um, specific highlights that he obviously just wanted to put into this one particular portion of this letter. So when we look at this, um, the first thing we see here is Jesus giving his disciples, the 12 men he's been pouring into all of this time, speaking to privately, building up their understanding, their spirituality, their faith, in comparison to the large groups of people where he can't give that kind of one-on-one sort of Uh, teaching and support to he's finally giving these men the ability to go out without him 
and go from city to city and get their feet wet, so to speak, in doing the work of ministry that they would continue to do after he dies or after he ascends to the heavens, let's say. So he gives them power over all, it says, over all demons, power and authority, and the power to heal diseases. So he sent them out and he says, but don't take anything for your journey, nothing that would encumber you. This was him teaching them how to walk in a way people wouldn't expect. Because you have to understand, the Jews weren't immune to believing in miracles. They studied the ancient texts or knew of the old stories of Moses and Elijah and all these different key people in the Jewish story. So they knew about God's ability to do supernatural things. But oftentimes they would ascribe to men who moved in power and authority or holiness on behalf of God, they ascribed to them a certain look, (laughs) a certain way of living, a certain lifestyle, lots of robes, fine places to live, um, lots of respect. And he wanted his disciples to follow in his path, which was don't look any type of way. Don't even bring food with you. Go fully trusting in me. Go allowing yourself to be looked after by people, seeing how people respond to you. Don't go looking like anyone important, anyone well-prepared. Go out in just pure trust, pure faith. And he says, whenever you go to a house, stay there. Whenever you enter a house that receives you back, stay there until you leave that city. And when you go anywhere where they do not welcome you, they do not receive you, shake the dust off your feet, breaking all ties with them as a testimony against them that they did not receive my message. So the disciples did exactly as he told them to do. They went from village to village, preaching the gospel and healing the sick everywhere. Then it adds this sort of little side note where Herod is getting word of this man, Jesus, and Although Luke didn't go into any detail about it, John had already been beheaded. He remained in prison until Herod issued um, the ruling that he would be beheaded for his non-existent crimes. Excuse me. So he's hearing now about this Jesus and he's confused because he's getting a lot of different information that perhaps this is John the Baptist back from the dead. Perhaps this is the ancient prophet Elijah who has suddenly appeared, which, you know, they had reasons to believe that Elijah would appear at some point in the future again, would reappear because Elijah was one of those ancient prophets who, if you recall in the Old Testament, he went up into heaven in a pillar of fire with God. He never actually died an earthly death. He literally left the earth, never saw death. So in the Jewish tradition, there's reason to believe that Elijah would, would visit the earth again, given that he never even died. And so they're thinking maybe that's who it is. And that's what they're telling Herod. It could be Elijah. It could be a different prophet, another prophet just resurrected. But Herod said, I personally had John beheaded. So who is this man about whom I hear such things? You know, he can't even wrap his mind around potentially John the Baptist is resurrected or an old prophet from thousands of years ago is is back here today. He can't comprehend it, but he does probably have a bit of a guilty heart knowing that he killed John the Baptist completely unjustly and is maybe a little bit fearful of whoever this is. If he is thinking it could be John the Baptist resurrected, he's concerned right? Is he going to come for me? 
So no doubt in Herod's heart, he's already building this suspicion, this disdain for this man. Now, it says he kept trying to see Jesus, but we have no indication that he went to Jesus. He was probably sending people to tell Jesus to come to him, of which Jesus wasn't going to do because he had a mission, and that mission was not to give Herod just a private audience for his own fascination. Um, So just a little side note there where Herod is getting more and more aware of this man and, and concerned about him. Now, it says, when the apostles came back from being sent out by Jesus, they told him everything that they had done, and he took them privately away with him because he was no doubt inundated by crowds constantly. So he was always searching for a private place to sort of decompress with his disciples, see what's going on, share more with them, get away with his father God on his own. So he went across to a city called Bethsaida, but of course the crowds learned of this. And they decided to follow him and join him in his private place. And being Jesus, he welcomed them and he began talking to them about the kingdom of God and healing everyone who needed to be healed. As that day came to an end, when this large group was surrounding him, the disciples decided to come to Jesus and say, hey, can you send them away? They need to go find something to eat. They need to find places to stay. You know, we're in an isolated place out here. This this isn't suitable for this massive group of people. They came to the conclusion there was 5,000 men. And again, as we've seen previously, they didn't count women and children in those numbers because men were most important. So if there was 5,000 men, you could guess it was a much larger crowd than 5,000 men because no doubt they had their wives and their children with them. At least a percentage of them would have. So this was a large group of people. And the disciples, you know, probably wanted Jesus to themselves. You know, they were probably very excited. They'd just come back from all of their journeys. They wanted to talk of their exploits to him. They wanted to get his perspective. And they were having to share him with all of these people. And they very much wanted them to go away. (laughs) And Jesus says to them, you give them something to eat. He doesn't even acknowledge their want for these people to leave. He literally says, oh, well, so you're citing that they have needs. They need to eat something, so feed them. And they're like, well, we only have five loaves of bread and two fish that they got from this little boy. And they said, unless we go buy food, which they're thinking, we don't have the money to feed this many people. How, how are we supposed to feed them with what we have? And he says to his disciples, have them sit down to eat in groups of about 50 each. And I find that really interesting. Jesus is all about order. (laughs) Order. Put this group into 50 people. Something about that probably has so much more symbolism and meaning than even I can extract from it on the surface. And no, I didn't do a commentary on this. I will read a commentary. So I'm taking it at face value for myself. But all I see in that is order. The need for order to make the process more sustainable and and just more peaceful for both them getting fed and and for them to be in a large group as a bunch of people. So he wants them to all sit down and to eat in groups of 50. So they did so and the disciples had them all sit down. Then Jesus obviously took the two fish and the five loaves. He looked up to heaven. He gave thanks to God. He broke it and he passed it to his disciples and basically probably created some kind of a, an assembly line of pass the food, pass the food, pass the food until everyone had eaten and were completely satisfied. It says in verse 17, and every bit that was left over 
was so much abundant that they had 12 baskets full. So they started out with one basket with five loaves of bread and two fish. And by the end, they had 12 baskets full of bread and fish. So man, oh man, that's Jesus. Look at what he can do. (laughs) Look at what the father can do with your tiny, tiny, tiny amount of anything of anything. It's not just about food and provision. The tiny amount of money, the tiny amount of time, the tiny amount of prayer, the tiny way you help someone, the way he can amplify that to where you end with more than you began. It defies possibility, but what does the Bible say? With God, nothing is impossible. They ended with more than they started with, and everyone got full to complete satisfaction. Man, our God is abundant. Then again, we see that Jesus went away to pray privately. Again, you see Jesus always ministering to the crowds when he's pulled upon, but then when he sort of feels like he's reached a good state with everything, people are, are their needs are met, their sicknesses are healed, their bellies are full, okay, I'm going to go away now. He's always looking for that opportunity to re- reconnect with his Father, to fill himself back up. Such an example to all of us. The disciples were with him, and he asked them a question. He said, who do the crowd say that I am? And the disciples answered him and they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Others say you're an ancient prophet that has come back to life. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? That is God. That is God speaking to us all the time. You hear the world, what the world says that Jesus is. You can hear it constantly. What the world says Jesus is. Oh, he was just a prophet. He was a good man. He was a holy man. But he wasn't the Messiah. Uh, maybe he didn't even exist. That's coming more on the scene now. Oh, he, the, whole, the whole Jesus myth is just that. It's a myth. You hear what everyone's saying now. But who do you say that I am? And without an encounter with him, without knowing him at the deepest core of your being through encounters that no man can take away from you. You cannot say with absolute certainty who he is, but these disciples, they walked with him. They talked with him. They slept in the same area as him. They watched him. They learned from them. They were encountering God every moment they were with Jesus. And with that certainty, with that experience of him, Peter could say, well, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed of God. May it be so that we all have encounters with God where we can speak that confidently, that certainly, despite the doubt of the people around us, despite the rage of the world that says he isn't real. But then Jesus strictly warned and admonished them not to tell this truth to anyone, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected as the Messiah by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be put to death and on the third day be raised up from death to life. So in a way he's saying it is no shock that many people wouldn't think I am who I am. But remember, he he was very open with who he was to whom? The priests the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the scribes, he was, he was telling them very early days who he was. He didn't withhold his identity to them, which enraged them. 
But then in other times when he's dealing with the crowds, when he's dealing with miracles, he's, he's keeping, he's keeping it, his identity quiet. But he says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected as the Messiah. I have to be, I'm supposed to be rejected by the elders, by the chief priests, and by the scribes. It was part of prophecy. It was never not going to happen. It was his fate. And I will be put to death and on the third day raised up from death to life. And now he's moving into the intensity of what it means. If you're going to be on my side, if I'm telling you what's going to happen to me, if you're going to be with me, if you're doing this thing, if you're all in, He's saying, if you wish to follow me, verse 23, as my disciple, you must deny yourself. You must set aside selfish interests. Because that's all Jesus has been modeling for them. And that's all he will continue to model for them right up until the very end and, and forever. <laughs> so you, he's not asking you to live a standard he himself isn't living. Do you think he wanted to die a painful death on the cross? Do you think he wanted to suffer the rebukes and the, and the disdain that he was facing constantly by the Pharisees? No, but he did it. He did it for something higher and something greater than himself. So that is the same challenge he gives to all who decide to follow him. And he's specifically looking at these 12. He says, you must deny yourself, set aside any selfish interest and take up your cross daily and at this time and place, everyone knew what a cross was. It was a common form of Roman, uh, of Roman murder. <laughs> it was how they put so many people to death. They, they hung you on a cross. It was one of the most brutal, if not, I've read many people say, the most brutal way to kill a person. It is a slow death by asphyxiation and excruciating pain. He's saying you must carry your cross every day. You must take up that instrument of death, you must die to yourself, your interests, every single day, expressing a willingness to endure whatever may come and follow me, believing in me, conforming to my example in living, and if need be, suffering or even perhaps dying because of faith in me. He says, if anyone wishes to follow me, this is what you're accepting. Like, he's, he's not mincing words here. He's not watering it down. And that, I would argue, it definitely stood for his disciples because all but one were murdered. <laughs> okay, but can you roll that out even to yourself in present day? If you wish to follow me, here are the rules. <laughs> you deny yourself, you take up your cross daily, accepting whatever may come, and you follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in this world, he is the one who will save it. And what are you saving your life from? You're saving it, he says, from the consequences of sin and the separation from God. You're saving yourself from being eternally separated from God. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses himself? For whoever is ashamed here and now of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Heavenly Father and of the holy angels. So he's saying, if you live ashamed of me, you don't endure, you don't take up your cross, you fall back, you reject, you change form. 
That is saying, I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed of my father. I'm ashamed of Jesus. I'm ashamed of what I've learned. I don't want to be known for it. And whoever is ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of him when I come in my glory and the glory of the father and of the angels. But I tell you truthfully, there are some among those standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. I believe, I'm not, don't quote me on this, but I believe he's prophesying to John who does not taste death. John is the only disciple who does not see an earthly death in the way the, the other disciples were. And I think he's prophesying that, but don't quote me on that because he might be speaking to something else. But I'm, I think that that's what he's speaking to, that there will some, there'll be some who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Let's take a break and finish the last half of this chapter. All right, so now we're going to get into the transfiguration. This is a very powerful story in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 28, where, you know, Luke speeds up about a week from this last discussion that Jesus has with his disciples over a week later. He's now talking to them, and he decided to, to uh, take Peter, John, and James with him up to a mountain to pray. And as he prays, his face begins to change and his clothes become white and brilliant. And two men, Moses and Elijah, who are long dead, are long gone, let's say, appeared to him in glory and were speaking of his departure. They were talking to him about his coming death. Um, and Peter, who had been, been sleeping... <laughs> Um, when he and the rest of the men were fully awake, they saw Jesus's glory and splendor and the men who were speaking with him. And then Peter decides, you know what, let's make some kind of a monument here to this, this incredible occasion. And then the cloud formed and the father God spoke to Peter and was like, listen, this is my son, my chosen one, listen and obey and yield to him. He was like, stop with the whole, let's make a moment, uh, you know, uh, some sort of a tent or some sort of a monument to this. This is my son. This is serious, Peter. <laughs> this is a very important moment. And so the disciples were kept silent <laughs> about this after that. So I want to actually yield over to a commentary from the working preacher. He's a a professor at the University of Gardner-Webb, Gardner-Webb University. His name is Scott Schaff, and I really appreciated what he said on this story because it is a very important moment, and I want to make sure that I do it the justice it deserves. He says this, The transfiguration of Jesus follows immediately on the scene where Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ, the Messiah. That scene ends with Jesus' teaching on the coming glory of God's kingdom to be experienced by the disciples. The transfiguration scene provides a dramatic confirmation of Peter's confession and a foretaste of the glory to be experienced when God's kingdom is fully present. The emphasis throughout the episode is on the dazzling attestation of Jesus' identity. We are first given the description of his transformed appearance in verse 29. The change in the appearance of his face is reminiscent of Moses' face becoming radiant upon experiencing the presence of God in Exodus chapter 34. But the description of the change in Jesus' clothes distinguishes him from Moses significantly. Jesus' clothes become dazzling white. Words Luke uses to describe the appearance of angelic figures in Luke chapter 24 and Acts chapter 1. 
Jesus' transformed appearance is thus not merely because he, experience, he is experiencing God's glory like Moses did, but rather because he is the very source of divine glory. The point is made explicit when the three disciples are said to see Jesus' glory in verse 32. The appearance of Moses and Elijah in verse 30 adds to the attestation of Jesus' identity. The two are commonly interpreted as embodying the law and the prophets, which is no doubt a significant point. The risen Jesus himself will later assert that Moses and the prophets point toward him. Luke tells us in our scene that Moses and Elijah were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem in verse 31, surely meant to anticipate Jesus' teaching that he is the ultimate fulfillment of Scripture. Yet, this is not the only significance of Moses and Elijah. That Jesus was the prophet like Moses, predicted by Moses himself, is emphasized through the book of Luke and Acts, seen most clearly in Acts chapter 3, interpreting Deuteronomy chapter 18. And Elijah's appearance was associated with the coming of the day of the Lord in Malachi 4. Their appearance thus points to Jesus fulfilling specific prophecies associated with them, as well as the more general notion of Jesus as the fulfillment of all scripture. The most dramatic attestation of Jesus' identity comes with the voice of God in verse 35. The basic message echoes the divine words spoken at Jesus' baptism, but there are notable differences. The message at Jesus' baptism was spoken directly to Jesus, You are my son. But here the message is for the disciples' ears when he says, This is my son. At the baptism, the adjective describing Jesus' son was Jesus' sonship was beloved, again a message directed at Jesus from the Father. But here it is the word chosen, further describing Jesus' relationship to God from the disciples' perspective. The message of Jesus' sonship here is given an imperative implication, listen to him. Jesus' sonship is not a matter of abstract theology, but requires the obedient response of the disciples to Jesus' message. Jesus' most recent teaching emphasized the costly demands made on those who would follow him, for example, denying themselves and taking up their cross. And that is surely the primary message meant to be listened to and obeyed here. Whereas the voice of the baptism came from heaven, here it comes from the very cloud in which the disciples are already enveloped. This suggests a rather intense experience of God's close presence. It also is again reminiscent of Moses' own experience of God, God's presence at Mount Sinai, the most formative revelation of God in the history of Israel. And one of the significant details of the story that is unique to Luke's account of the transfiguration is that it occurs in the context of prayer. Neither Matthew nor Mark mentions that Jesus had gone up on the mountain specifically to pray, and neither mentions that Jesus was praying when the transfiguration occurred. It is clearly a point that Luke wants us to note. Prayer is, in fact, a significant theme throughout Luke's writings. Luke is the only gospel author to tell us of Jesus praying on other momentous occasions. Following his baptism, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus while he's praying. Jesus' selection of the twelve apostles occurs after spending an entire night in prayer. Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah occurs in the context of Jesus praying.
And other key places where Luke shows Jesus praying include in the garden before his arrest and on the cross. A point that we may especially observe in the Transfiguration account, but which is also present in some of these other places, is that prayer for Jesus involved at times a dramatic encounter of God's presence. Prayer was not merely speaking words to God, but was a truly spiritual experience of God. Lest we think that such a possibility of divine encounter is limited to Jesus, we see the same thing with a variety of characters in Acts, which is Luke's second volume. To give just a few of many examples, the the gathered early church experienced a dramatic divine response to their communal prayer. The centurion Cornelius's prayers result in an angel being sent to him and in him being chosen by God as the first Gentile Christian. Paul and Silas are freed from prison by God while praying, and Paul experiences an encounter with the risen Christ while praying. Thus, while we should no doubt not expect to have experiences like that of Jesus in the Transfiguration on a regular basis in prayer, the Transfiguration along with these other scenes should challenge us to seek something higher in prayer than speaking mere words in the hopes that God might possibly somehow listen to us. Prayer should be seeking the powerful presence of God in our lives. We must also remember that the disciples in this scene We must also remember with the disciples in this scene that dramatic experiences of Christ's glory come with the call to listen and to follow in costly obedience. All right, and now we move on to the last few uh, portions of the book of Luke that remain. We move on to the story of The day after the transfiguration, this father is coming to Jesus saying that his son is afflicted by a demonic spirit or an evil spirit that is throwing him down, causing him to foam at the mouth and does not leave him easily without first bruising and mauling him. And he's desperate for his son to be freed from this. And he said, I've begged your disciples to cast this demon out and they have not been able to do it, to which Jesus gets A bit angry, as we can see. He says, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy. But what we don't see here is in Matthew chapter 17, it actually gives more details of this story. It it gives the part where the disciples you know, who were essentially rebuked in front of these people by Jesus, the disciples came to him and they privately asked him in Matthew chapter 17, verse 19, they said, why could we not drive it out? And Jesus answered them, he said, because of your little faith or your lack of trust and confidence in the power of God. Because of your little faith. For I assure you and most solemnly say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there. And if it is God's will, it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. But this kind of demon does not go out except by prayer and fasting. The disciples had a certain amount of faith, but they, ha- they didn't have the kind of faith they needed to conquer this kind of demon. Perhaps they hadn't been in prayer. Perhaps they hadn't been fasting. Perhaps they weren't actually taking it as seriously as they needed to take it. And that's why they were unsuccessful. But Jesus says to them, because of your little faith, 
because of your little faith, that's why you couldn't. And you can see his frustration. He's coming to the end of his life. He's coming to the end. He's, he knows what's around the corner for him. Luke just so happens to speed up the three years of Jesus's ministry quite a lot and kind of get straight to his, his, the meat of his book is going to be on his journey to Jerusalem, his journey to his death and then his death and then his, his, his resurrection. So that's what Luke focuses in on. Matthew gives a lot more detail and a much, much longer series of chapters that talk so much about what he did in those three years before he went to his death. So here you are, it's like sped up and, it, and we're only in Luke chapter nine and you can feel the urgency with, with, with which Jesus speaks to his disciples because he's like, listen, what have you been doing for three years watching me? What did you just witness on the mountain? You know who I am and I have endowed you with authority and power. You should have the faith you need to be able to overcome anything now that you see in this world that is against the will of my father. But you just don't, you're not doing it. (laughs) And he's like, how much longer will I even be with you? You know, you can feel the intensity in his heart for them to get it, for them to really, really, really get it. And then from there, um, Jesus says to his disciples, um, oh, excuse me, uh, kind of lost my place here. Oh, he says, um, right after this, he says, let these words sink into your ears. He's speaking to his disciples. The son of man is going to be betrayed and handed over to men who are his enemies. However, they didn't understand this. The meaning was kept hidden from them so that they would not grasp it and they were afraid to ask him about it. I'm sure somewhere in their hearts they couldn't comprehend him actually going to die. They they, they it just it wasn't it didn't make sense. It didn't make sense to them that that God would come and and do all these fantastic miracles and come as this great leader and and not stay with them, you know? So I'm sure just their brains couldn't comprehend what he was saying. You're going to be betrayed. You're going to be handed over to your enemies. You know, I don't think that they could possibly understand at that moment. And then it goes on to the test of greatness when the disciples are basically bickering amongst themselves about which of them of the 12 is the greatest, which has the most authority, who has been the most effective, who's walking in the greatest realms of holiness and righteousness. It's It's a childish skirmish. Um, But Jesus knew what they were thinking and he took a child and he had a child stand beside him and he said, whoever welcomes this child in my name welcomes me and whoever welcomes me welcomes him who sent me. And the one who is the least among all of you is the one who is truly great. So again, this is Jesus. He's flipping the kingdom upside down and inside out. His message is always different than you would expect. The one who sees himself humbly, who looks at himself, as it says, with a realistic view, that's the greatest one. Those of you who are trying to puff yourself up with pride, who's been most effective, who's casted out the most demons, who's healed the most people, you're getting it all wrong. (laughs) That's not how I measure. I don't measure who's greatest, number one, but I certainly wouldn't measure who's greatest by things you can add up and count, things you can brag about to one another. It's going to be the greatest of you is always going to be the one who thinks himself the least, who's the, the least of a showman, 
who walks in humility? Was Jesus ever counting up how many people per day he healed and saying, whoa, ho, ho, look at me, guys? No, he was instead sharing his power with his disciples to walk in. He was freely giving himself to the individual. He would stop for the one. He was constantly trying to change their understanding of pride versus humility, the actual ways of the kingdom. And then there's this little sort of off story where John is telling Jesus, hey, there's a man who's driving out demons in your name. Should we stop him? Because he's not following with us. He's not with us. And Jesus says very simply, don't stop him. For he who is not against you is for you. (laughs) Leave him alone. He's doing God's work. Let him do it. Now, when the time was approaching for him to be taken up, this is in verse 51, Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem to fulfill his purpose. He sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went into a Samaritan village to make arrangements for him, but the people would not welcome him because he was traveling towards Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and destroy them? But he said, he rebuked them and said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Again, you see James and John, they're so ready to take up, the, take up a sword to defend Jesus. They're so ready to call down fire and destruction on people who don't serve him. They're still looking at this through the realm of man's wisdom. He, they see Jesus as this great military leader, this profound holy man who should be defended, who should be treated with utmost respect and servitude wherever he goes. And Jesus is like, no, <laughs> no, no, I came to not destroy men's lives, but to save them. You don't know what spirit you're of. Get the right spirit, James and John. You're not here to punish everyone who doesn't believe me. Their punishment is enough. It will be eternal separation from me if they don't receive the message. It will be eternal separation from God. That's enough punishment. You don't need to punish them on top of what they already have in store for their future in their present day. Hmm. And finally, we get to the very end where he gives, Luke gives three examples of people who have come to Jesus saying they want to follow him. And again, so much of the main theme of this book is the cost of following him. And as it says on, in verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus is basically like calling his bluff. He's like, oh, really? Well, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. So he's saying, if I go into oblivion and I have nowhere to sleep, I have no housing, I'm in the elements, I have no food, I have no one to look after me, you really would come? That's the kind of life you, you, you'd you be signing up for. See, he's not promising them easy days. He's trying to say, if you're going to agree to this, I want you to agree to this knowing full well how bad it could get. You have to know that. <laughs> because not every day you're going to have these wealthy women who are helping us get by financially. And not every day you're going to have open doors with people ready to receive you. That's not how it's going to always look. You're telling me, I will follow you wherever you go. And he's saying, you sure? What if wherever I go looks like this? What if, it, what if wherever I go looks like you have less than birds have? Will you really? Then he said to another man, follow me. But the man said, Lord, allow me first to go bury my father. First, 
yeah, I'll, I'll follow you, but, but hang on. I, I need to get this, this, and this in order. Jesus says, allow the spiritually, spiritually dead bury their, to bury their own dead. As for you, go and spread the news about the kingdom. He's saying, again, if you're going to follow me, you follow me. If you're going to seek God, you seek him. That's it. Nothing else is first. Nothing else is first. He's first place. This is what he's, this is what he's calling people to. Complete devotion. Total surrender. And then the final example, he says, Luke says, Another man also said, I will follow you, Lord, as your disciple. But first, let me say goodbye to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back to the things left behind. No one who does, does this is fit for the kingdom of God. You're either all in or you're all out. These are hard truths, guys. I don't read these and think to myself, yep, well, I got that under control. No, absolutely not. It is not easy. He's not saying something easy. He is, he's almost trying to make a life with him seem very unappealing. He doesn't want people who are fakers in the club, so to speak. He wants you knowing full well how serious the commitment is. And this is something that we're not often preached in churches. We're not often reminded that it's a full commitment. It is a total surrender. It is a 100% dying to yourself for glory and reward that you cannot comprehend, but it isn't going to look like the world defines glory and reward. And you have to decide for yourself if you really want that. Because each of these men were saying, hey, or especially the last two examples, what they were saying is like, yes, God, I want to serve you. I'm coming with you. But first, let me go bury my father. That sounds completely reasonable, eh? Like these aren't re- you're like unreasonable reasons to slow their roll. <laughs> you know, let me say goodbye to my family. Let me bury my dad. And he's like, nope. He's given these extreme examples of, hey, if you're in, you're in. He's building his church. He's understanding his life is coming to an end. This is serious. He is bringing complete and total transformation to the world. And if you're going to jump in, you've got to, number one, understand what you're committing to. And you have to, number two, be committed. There's going to be plenty of reasons in your life. And I'm sure, no doubt, wherever you are right now, there are plenty of reasons not to seek him not to stay committed, not to be devoted, not to surrender. There's plenty of justifiable reasons to say, oh, yeah, I'll put it off later. I'll talk to him later. And I'm preaching to the choir right now. I'm talking to myself. But he says, hey, you're not fit for the kingdom if you put your hand to the plow and look backward to the things left behind. If you long for your old life, if you think there's any chance you're going to ache for the things you might leave behind to come after me, you're not fit, man. When you're so in something where it doesn't matter what you lose, you're going for it. That's the heart that fire falls on. That is the heart that God calls in and he, and he walks beside. He's not looking for wishy-washy. He's not looking for partial commitment. He's saying, follow me, take up your cross, deny yourself every day and endure to the end. 
But I appreciate that Jesus wasn't selling us a bag of lies. He wasn't making it seem like it was going to be rainbows and butterflies every day. Some preachers might do that to try to get you to come on in. But that is not the message Jesus preached. He said, this is total commitment, man. If you're with me, you're with me. Hmm. So that's 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 the story. <laughs> that is Luke chapter 9. It's another long chapter and I still don't think I did it justice. There's just so much. There's so much in it. But Luke is speeding up his life. He's speeding up so many of those first three years to get to what he wanted to focus on. And that's why I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to go back and do some of the other chapters or the other gospels as well to fill in some of the missing time. He's giving a lot of these high points, these very important messages that Jesus said during his three years, but he's really rushing the story to get to uh, Jesus beginning his journey into Jerusalem and ultimately his death and resurrection. So, but this chapter, man, oh man, it's a serious, serious chapter. It's a hard truth, but it's the truth. That's it. It's the truth. It was all about, Luke was trying to paint this picture of who Jesus is through the transfiguration, through him asking Peter, who do you say that I am? He's trying to drive down deep exactly who this being is that could ask for the level of sacrifice and commitment and self-denial that he will ask for. But unless you know who he is, who he really is, you can't understand why he's worth it. You can't understand why he's worth what he asks. I hope this chapter blessed you. I hope it convicted us, all of us. May it be so. (laughs) It should. These are the words of life. And they don't come to tickle your ears and stroke your ego and calm your nerves. (laughs) He's telling you the truth. And you get to decide, eh? You get to decide as the word of God is spread out into your life, what soil it falls on. You get to decide to say yes or no. And how serious you take it. But he says, hey, there's, it's either all in or all out for me. And you just have to decide if it's worth it. Is it better to have pleasure on this earth now? Or is it pleasure? Is it better to have se- nev- no separation from God for eternity? It really comes down to that. Do you want an easy, calm, peaceful, successful life here and now? Or do you want complete oneness with your creator on this earth, and forever. Thank you for listening to the Narrow Road Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Boyer, and I will be back with you tomorrow for another episode, and we will dive in deeper. So let's keep going. Thank you so much for listening, and bye-bye.